just telling Scott, it's a little bit more like a group effort. You know, come up here and somebody other than me prays for me. All right. We're going to look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. While you're turning there, I want to ask you a couple of questions, and I think you could probably answer them. Some of you can. Who wrote these words? You ready? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul. How about, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Right again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Y'all are so A-plus students. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I want to ask you, I don't, know about, oh, I don't know about you, but I cannot do without those words. I cannot live without those words. Those words are life to me. I live by them. They're promises from God to me. They tell me who I am. They tell me what I need. They tell me about my Savior. And they tell me how uh, about my standing with God through Jesus Christ. I can't imagine life without these words. So this is the story about how the oppressor of the church became the apostle who wrote one half of the New Testament, including these life-altering, gospel-soaked words that we just heard. Let's dig in. Acts chapter 9, listen to the word of God. We'll first look at the first two verses. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem the oppressor. Who is this scoundrel and what's his problem? Who was Saul before he met Jesus? He grew up and lived in his hometown Tarsus, a Greek city. He looked around at the culture and his mom and dad were Jewish folk and they probably said to him, little Saul, Saul Don't be like those Greeks out there. Don't be like those pagans out there. We're going to raise you right. 
And so when he was 14 years old, they packed him up and sent him to Jerusalem, where he would study under a famous Pharisee named Gamaliel, whom you met a few weeks ago when he was the one who kept all the apostles from getting killed all at once. So he studied under Gamaliel, level-headed Pharisee that everybody respected, and Saul became the best of the best. He said to the Philippians, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He was a persecutor of the people of God. How did he become the great anti-Christian crusader? What was his problem? He wasn't kissing up to anybody. I think he was self-driven. Maybe it was more like this. Saul is sincere. He really believes that God is with him. He believes that God has called him to clean up Jerusalem and the cities nearby of anything that would pollute the Jewish faith and the way of life. He would say to you, I'm just being faithful. I'm being faithful to God. He's being zealous for the name of God, just like Elijah standing up to King Ahab, the wickedest king of Israel, and saying, God is God and your gods are not. He sees God's people led astray by false teaching, and he is going to stamp this out. So he moves into what I call cause-oriented. He becomes cause-oriented. He has a negative ministry. He's going to stamp this thing out if it's the last thing he does. His whole life is now dedicated, not to God himself, but to getting rid of, of this thing called the way. Probably named the way because they remember Jesus' words saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He became intoxicated with his mission. In Acts 26, he's telling his testimony. He called it an obsession. He says, many a time I went from synagogue, uh, from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. And in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. And here he is on his way to to a foreign city, Damascus in Syria, about 200 and some miles away from Jerusalem. And he's breathing threats and murders, as in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing, it's like he's breathing in, breathing out. This is his life. It is, it is, it's, it's it's the air that he breathes to see us die. So what's going on here? Isn't zeal for God a good thing? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that zeal for God is a fine thing, except that zeal without knowledge is not. How did Paul perhaps, and, and, and perhaps other persecutors miss the boat so badly? Jesus said, you know, they're going to put you out of the synagogue. A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. So people who are chasing the Christians around thinking they're doing God a favor. He looks like a psychopath, he sounds like a psychopath, and acts like a psychopath, but he's really sincere, sincerely wrong, full of zeal, 
but for the wrong thing. This is the part where the 20th century mind says, see, this is what happens when people get too religious. They start hating people. John Lennon was right. Get rid of religion and you'll have peace in the world. Right? It's religion that's causing all the problems. It's religion that causes all the wars. Or at least just be a moderate. Don't be a fundamentalist. Then everybody can get along. Okay, be religious, but don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. That's where all the problems happen. i got three things to say about that. One, it is possible for anybody to get grabbed by a cause and turn it into an idol and turn, it, and turn into a jerk and trash relationships and trash people. No matter what religion you say you're into, can happen. Two, it is possible for even followers of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to be big on zeal and short on love. Y'all have never seen that happen, right? That you can turn theology, morality, and knowledge, all good things, into idols and trash people and trash relationships. Some of you are victims of that heard some of your stories. The third thing i got to say about it is this. God does not call you to be moderate. God calls you to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Doing everything in all of your life for the glory of God, because the deeper you get into the love of Christ, the more full of love for people you will become. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 9, verses uh, uh, down, down further. It says, Saul breathing threats, starting at verse 1, as we read that he's going to bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, starting at verse 3, he says, Now he went on his way. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? I picture his voice squeaking at that point. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor What is Jesus going to do about this problem? What's Jesus going to do about a problem named Saul? Well, Jesus is watching. He's the sovereign Lord in the heavens. He's king over all, and he hears and he cares when the cries of his people touch his compassionate heart. And it's like when God says to Moses, I have indeed heard the cries of my people. So you go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Now, Jesus decides it's time to make his move. And he comes to Paul in power, a light that is brighter than the noonday sun, we learn in Acts chapter 26. It's noon, 
and the light that shines around Paul is brighter than the noon sun. I don't know if you ever, you know, you ever try to work a lesser light, a flashlight or your cell phone, and the sun's shining. The sun is bigger than everything. The sun is brighter than everything. This light was brighter than the noonday sun. And he has to fall to the ground. And Jesus Christ comes directly to him. And Jesus' followers are, you know, they were terrified of Saul, but now Saul is terrified of Jesus. Because Jesus is the risen and exalted king, he's no longer in the state of humiliation where we see him traveling in the Gospels as a, as a humble uh, uh, God-man, depending on God for everything and, and trusting God and, and, and knowing that people will abuse him, knowing that he will get hungry and knowing that he will be tired and knowing that he will be rejected and, and identifying with our humanity and humbling himself even unto death on the cross. But those days are over. Because God has raised him up. And God has given him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus comes to Saul, not in a display of, of, of the weakness that we see the, the, uh, Jesus so beautiful in, in the Gospels, but in a display of power. He was sown in weakness, yet he is raised in power. And he makes a power move on Paul. He is no longer headed for the cross. He is no longer in a place of weakness. He's the king who is defending his church. And he is mighty to save. So the king comes to defend his church. The king is coming to deliver his church from the oppressor. Just like Moses delivered the people of God from the oppression of Pharaoh. Just like Joshua delivered the people of God from the oppression of the Amalekites. Just like Gideon delivered the people of God from the oppression of the Midianites. And just like Esther delivered the people of God from the oppression of Haman. And like David delivered the people of God from the oppression of the Philistines. Jesus delivers his people from the oppression of Saul. And Jesus delivers you and me from the oppression of sin and Satan because Jesus is mighty to save. There's a beautiful passage in what we call the shorter catechism. And the question is, how does Jesus execute the office of king? And it goes something like this. Christ, Jesus, executes the office of king in subduing us to himself, as he did Paul, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus comes to the defense of his people when he meets up with Saul. And it's a power move, make no mistake. Listen to what Jesus says to Paul, verse 4. Saul, Saul. You remember how Jesus would address people and begin a very serious conversation. Martha, Martha, you were troubled over many things. Uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you wouldn't listen. In other words, Jesus is coming to Saul and saying, Saul, Saul, 
I am about to have a very serious confrontation and conversation with you. A vital thing. This is not a casual conversation we're about to have. Why are you persecuting me, says Jesus? And most of you, I think, understand what's going on there. You persecute the people of God, you persecute Jesus. Jesus is one with us and we are one with him. Every time you see the phrase, especially in Paul's writings, in Christ, that is another way of saying we are one with Christ, that we have union with Christ. So anything you do to the people of God, you do to Jesus. Anything you do for the people of God, you do for Jesus. Anything that you have done for the least of these, my brethren, you have done unto me, says Jesus. He is connected with you. He is one with you. You are the body. He is the head. And that's the glorious body of Christ, the church. Jesus is one with us. And then then he gets Saul used to taking orders from Jesus. You know, he goes, who are you, Lord? The matter of who is Lord is established right away because Saul understood that if you get a bright light from heaven, this is probably from God. He understood his, the Jewish writings well enough to understand that this is not something that, is, that you negotiate with. So Jesus says, rise, verse 6, enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Now, if this had been a movie, uh, Jesus would have annihilated Saul never to be heard from again, and the good guys would have thrown a party. Yay! You know, ding-dong, the wicked Saul is dead. And, and that would be that. Then you can move on with your life. Get on with things. But no, no, Jesus is far more glorious than that. Because you know who the real enemy of the church of Jesus Christ is? It's not really Saul. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. Who's your real enemy? Jesus defends his bride, not by attacking Saul, but by attacking Satan. Jesus defeated Satan by saving Saul and making Saul defect from the army of Satan and making Saul one of Satan's worst nightmares. That's Jesus. That's the way Jesus does it. When the Bible says that we are more than conquerors, you know what it's saying? It's saying that not only do we conquer the sin and the death and and the devil, but that we turn them into servants for the kingdom. That we, 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 we conquer death, and then death begins to serve us as part of the kingdom. So Jesus comes to Saul and gives him the shock of his life. And it's this. God is not cheering for you. You are not working for God. You're working for the devil. You think you are serving God, but you're not. Now that's something for a guy struck with blindness to think about for three days. Because it says that he tried to open his eyes, but he could see nothing. And now his companions had to help him up and lead him into Damascus. Let's look at verses 10 through 31. I'm going to ignore a whole lot of this. It's so beautiful, and I, I, goodness gracious, we could, we could just keep talking about this, but I'm just going to try to hit on a couple of things. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, You you don't really mean that, do you, God? I'm sorry, I thought I heard you say you want me to go meet Saul of Tarsus. You can't possibly have said that to me. This is not of God. This is not a real vision. I think I must be hallucinating. Maybe it was those uh, painkillers I took the other day. This is obviously not a word from God. He says, but, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, I love that. Brother Saul. Wow. What, a, what an amazing change. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he gained his, regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. That's a switch. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. But they did not believe he was a disciple. Can you picture just uh, going to a door and, and he knows that the, that the disciples of Jesus are meeting in there. And he goes, hey, y'all, uh, y'all having a Bible study? Can I come and be part of your Bible study? And they all get kind of like get under the table, latch the door with three latches and turn up the security system and, and wait, wait until he goes away and finds another Bible study to to try to get involved. I mean, he's a poor guy. He, can't, you know, he tries to go to church, and everybody's afraid of him. He tries to go to a Bible study, and everybody's afraid of him. He tries to go to a prayer meeting, and he can't make it into a prayer meeting because everybody's, oh, not you. Uh-uh. Run, run. You know, it's just a, it's, it's kind of pitiful when you think about it. Uh, but Barnabas. But Barnabas. You remember Barnabas? What does his name mean? Anybody remember? Right. Son of encouragement. Uh, you know, we all need a Barnabas, don't we? Barnabas says, stick with me, brother. I, I, I'll, I'll get you in. 
He's with me. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers heard this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Mm. Jesus' intent in coming to Saul is not just to shock and humiliate and blind him, though he does all that. Jesus' intent is to come to Saul and reconcile the oppressor to himself. Look at what he put Saul through. Three days of blindness. Saul became on the outside what he had been on the inside. He put him in a state of weakness and made him helpless. Saul later said, while we were helpless, Christ Jesus died for us and saved us. Mr. Power is now being led around by the hand. Because you must become as a child to enter the kingdom of God. He moves Paul, or Saul, to real prayer for the first time in his life. By the way, what's Saul Paul think? Saul is the Jewish version of his name. Paul is the Greek version of his name. It's not like Saul is B.C. days and Paul is A.D. days. Uh, it's, it's, it's just the Greek and Jewish versions. He makes him dependent upon a stranger who was a follower of Jesus to come and lay hands on him and restore his sight. And through this man, Ananias, is that Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he receives the sign of baptism, something he thought he would never do in a million years. And he lays out the commission of Saul. God lays out the commission of Saul as a kingdom builder. He says that he's going to be my instrument. He's going to speak to kings. He's going to speak to... Gentiles. He's going to speak to these, uh, to, to these movers and shakers in the name of Jesus. And God also said that he must suffer many things. He plans for Saul to become persecuted himself, not as a punishment for all the evil things that Saul had done, but as a privilege to count him worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. So, what does this story, how can this story help us right here in the 21st century, right here at New Life Philly? The first thing I want to say, I've just got three things. Four things. Three things, yea, even four. Like the Proverbs. There are six things God hates, yea, even seven. Three things. Four things. This is the same powerful, resurrected, living king that rules and looks after and defends New Life Church. The same king that defends his people in the days of the oppression of Saul is the same king who rules and defends his congregations of his people here in the 21st century. He loves you, and he's got the power to Saul gets saved, 
And the effect on the church is verse 31. The church it has peace. As, uh, you know, it, it, this, the persecution lifts for a time. And, and it begins to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it continues to multiply and grow. This is what the Lord wants for his church. When the church is being persecuted, he's sovereign over that. He knows just how much persecution to allow and when to give the church peace. Jesus is the sovereign defender of the church. Think of him that way. The church is not out there doing its own thing. The church is not out there as a collection of orphans hoping that somehow we end up okay in the end. The church is Jesus' treasured possession, which he defends with all of his heart. Secondly, God is mighty to save. You ever say, God, I got this person in mind. He's a real scoundrel. He hates your name. He hates everything related to Christianity. And I'm praying, I would pray, Lord, please save him, but don't strain yourself. I know you prayed that, some of you. And I know your theology has something to say about that. I know your theology says that God can save anybody he wants. You can see it right here. And this is an example of the most, you know, Saul would have been been voted by his high school classmates as least likely to convert. God can do it. You got somebody in mind? Maybe somebody in your family, maybe it's one of your neighbors, maybe it's one of your kids. You don't have any use for Jesus Christ at all. God is able to stop any sinner in his or her tracks and give him or her a new life. There was a a man born in uh, India in the late 1800s named Sundar Singh. He was of the Sikh religion. He was from Punjab, northern India. He questioned everything religious. He was exposed to Christianity at an early age, but when his mother died, he burned a Bible page by page in front of all his friends. He was religious, but he had no use for Jesus, least likely to convert, right? But one night, he saw a bright light in his room, and he writes this. As I prayed and looked into the light, I saw the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. It had such an appearance of glory and love. If it had been some Hindu incarnation, I would have prostrated myself before it, but it was the Lord Jesus Christ whom I had been insulting a few days before. I felt that a vision like this could not come out of my own imagination. I heard a voice saying in Hindustani, How long will you persecute me? I have come to save you, and you are praying to know the right way. Why do you not take it? The thought then came to me, Jesus Christ is not dead, but living. And it must be he himself. So I fell at his feet, 
and got this wonderful piece which I could not get anywhere else. This is the joy I was wishing to get. When I got up, the vision had all disappeared, but although the vision disappeared, the peace and joy have remained with me ever since. And he became a missionary to his own country for the rest of his life. People knew him as the missionary with the bleeding feet because he's always traveling. So your neighbor and your kids and your workmates who love to laugh at Christianity or maybe they see it as dangerous are not too far gone for Jesus to save them. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that when you call upon the name of the Lord, he will save. Jesus is saving Muslims through visions and dreams. We heard a testimony right here a few years ago. Jesus can save anybody. He is mighty to save. Third thing. When you look at all the oppression that Saul did, and you think of so many lives ruined by him, you think of families that were separated and dragged apart and dragged to prison and even executed and children separated from their, from their, their parents, and, and you think, where is the justice? Where's the justice in all this? I mean, is this all there is? You know, you get, he's blind for three days, and, he, and, and that's that? God did not look at Saul and say, hey, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. He didn't get that message at all. Where is the justice? God knows that his justice has got to be satisfied. God knows that Paul has been taking men and women and binding up their hands and their legs and that that they were bound up to be interrogated and executed. And somebody has got to pay for that. Somebody has got to suffer for these wrongs. The same Jesus who appeared in all his kingly glory is the one who allowed himself to be persecuted to death for the sins of the persecuted and even for the sins of many future persecutors. So no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus is mighty to save and justice is established at the cross. Saul later wrote, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be reckoned as sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that is where justice was satisfied. There was nothing, nothing, nothing Paul could ever do in this life to try to atone for himself. Nothing. He had messed it up way too bad, and so have the rest of us. There is only one atonement There is only one way for us to be reconciled with a holy God, and that is for holy God to lay all of your sins upon the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. At the cross is where all of our sins are dealt with once and for all, and where you are clean from from the point that you place your faith in Jesus Christ until the time that you see him in glory. You are clean. You are forgiven. Justice has been served. Fourth thing, have you met Jesus? I mean, some of you were thinking, well, where's my Damascus Road experience? I didn't have a crisis on the road to Damascus. Many of you didn't. But you know, some of you did. And that's great. Some of you slipped into the kingdom quietly, And are not even sure exactly when. You just know that you love Jesus. 
And if you're not sure, if you're not sure that you are rightly connected to God through Jesus Christ, if you're not sure that you are saved, if you're not sure that you would be safe when he returns, today is the day of salvation. Today, right where you are. Or with a prayer partner, either up here in the front or in the back, we have prayer partners that be here. The prayer prayer people, prayer team, that'll just invite you, point you to Jesus. You can come and speak to one of them and say, I am not sure. I want to be sure. God says make every effort to make your calling and election sure. That means that you could be called. That means you could be elected and not sure. And it also means that this assurance, knowing that you know, is a blessing that God wants you to have. So I just want to ask all of you, I want to, by the authority of the word of God, I want to say, please, do not leave this room today without being sure that you are connected to God through Jesus Christ. That you belong to him, that you are a son or daughter of God through faith in Jesus. That you're a child of, of God, that you are in his family. And that when Jesus returns in power and in glory, that he will not come to you as an enemy, but he will come to you as your Savior and, and, and welcome you home. Not everybody gets a Damascus Road crisis. But maybe you've got one coming today. Or maybe it's not going to be a big Damascus Road crisis, maybe it's just going to be simply calling out to Jesus, Lord, save me by your grace. Prayer team, please come forward. Let me just uh, let me just pray. There will be prayer team members in the back, as well as prayer team members in the front. Let's take some time to pray.